This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Trump administration sent the marijuana industry into a tizzy Thursday. It rescinded Obama-era guidance to federal prosecutors that explicitly told them to lay off small-time marijuana cases and tacitly allowed the recreational pot industry to grow as long as it complies with state laws. Now things are murkier. For some perspective on what this means in Colorado, let's talk to the former U.S. attorney here, John Walsh, who's now in private practice in Denver. And welcome back to the program. Happy to be here. First off, what do you think of Attorney General Jeff Sessions' announcement? Well, I I think it may be more noise initially than actual change in policy on the ground. I'm not sure we're actually going to see a dramatic difference in federal marijuana enforcement here in Colorado in any event. But what it does do clearly is create confusion, Uh, confusion about what the scope of the federal marijuana enforcement policy really is. Uh, And it's confusion not just for the state of Colorado and Colorado state government and the marijuana industry. It's confusion for U.S. attorneys in the field. And when you say confusion, is it that you wished he would have laid out some other policy as opposed to just rescinding the old one? I I think it's fair to say that we all expected that this attorney general, who's very hostile to marijuana legalization... He has compared it to heroin. Exactly. Uh, uh, He has a strong view on it. I think we all expected a change in the policy. What I didn't expect is that he would simply rescind the prior policy and not replace it with anything else. Okay. So the prior policy is known as the Cole Memo. There were actually lots of memos from the federal government about marijuana. You were U.S. attorney when the Obama administration laid down these guidelines in the Cole Memo in 2013. And uh, in fact, you helped push the administration to issue some kind of guidance along with other Western U.S. attorneys. Why did you think that kind of guidance was necessary? Well, you may recall, Ryan, because I know you were covering the story back at that point, that one of the constant criticisms in 2010, 2011, 2012 of the Department of Justice is that we weren't clear about what our enforcement policy was on marijuana in states that had legalized marijuana. Uh, That was a problem for the U.S. attorneys in the field because we were having difficulty figuring out, okay, what is the basis on which we would decide to prosecute a state-licensed dispensary, for example? We needed to have some sort of neutral criteria upon which to decide. And so a group of us got together, formed a marijuana enforcement working group of U.S. attorneys and went to the department and said – we need some guidance. We need some national consistency here. So if people have a perspective that this coal memo, this directive from the Obama administration was sort of top down, that's not accurate. No, it's it, not It was at all. really the Western states clamoring for some guidance. That's true. And, and in fact, when the coal memo was put together, there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of input from U.S. attorneys in the field to make it a workable document. So do you think rescinding that and offering nothing in its stead is an irresponsible move on the attorney general's part. I I think it's ultimately an abdication of responsibility because it's it's in essence the attorney general saying to the U.S. attorneys, you're on your own on this. Make whatever decisions you want to make. Good luck. Indeed, Sessions really seemed to leave it up to U.S. attorneys to decide individually what cases are important to pursue. He wrote, prosecutors should follow well-established principles that govern all federal prosecutions. So then... Naturally, the attention turned to the top federal prosecutor here. That's U.S. Attorney Bob Troyer, who took over for you in that job. Uh, Let me read part of his statement. 
which everyone was waiting for. On Thursday, the United States Attorney's Office in Colorado has already been guided by these principles in marijuana prosecutions, focusing in particular on identifying and prosecuting those who create the greatest safety threats to our communities around the state. We will, consistent with the AG's latest guidance, continue to take this approach. It sounds pretty straightforward that, you know, he'll keep doing what he's doing. Uh, you know, Mr. Troyer, what what do you make of, of his response? Do you see wiggle room for him to change course? Well, the thing to keep in mind is that Bob Troyer is a career federal prosecutor, and he has been wrestling with this issue for the last seven years. So he understands where the difficulties are, and he certainly understands the context here in Colorado for legalized marijuana. We, and Bob was very much a part of this, worked closely in the U.S. Attorney's Office with the governor's office and state regulators to try to make this system work to ensure public safety. Okay, so the current U.S. attorney was at the table as Colorado figured out how to implement recreational marijuana. As as we on the federal side worked with the state, of course, we didn't make the decisions on how the state system was going to work, but we gave input about the implications for the federal side, and Bob was very much a part of that. Does he like marijuana? Dislike marijuana? I, I think his personal opinions really don't matter. He's going to enforce the law to the best of his ability following the guidance he gets from the attorney general. But here's the key thing. What the attorney general said yesterday was use your best discretion as a prosecutor based on circumstances and cases that come to you. That's what Bob Troyer has been doing for the last seven years, and he's going to keep doing it. So you don't think there's a course change ahead from the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Colorado? What, what I don't, I don't in the immediate run, unless a direction comes from the department in Washington saying what we meant when we withdrew the coal mm. memo is something more, uh, something that they haven't said yet, but something more about aggressive marijuana enforcement. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the former U.S. attorney in Colorado, John Walsh, about the announcement Thursday from the U.S. attorney general uh, when it comes to marijuana. Uh, I just want to say very quickly that uh, the current U.S. attorney is serving with Jeff Sessions' blessing. It's possible that President Trump could nominate someone else. Uh, that might change the dynamic, add a bit more uncertainty. Yes. Uh, you are known, in part, for cracking down in 2012 on medical dispensaries that were operating near schools. Uh, this was before recreational marijuana was legalized in Colorado. And that speaks, I think, to the discretion and power U.S. attorneys have in deciding how these laws get enforced. Uh, I wonder why did that feel particularly egregious in need of enforcement, uh, the proximity to schools? And, and what does that tell us about how maybe the U U.S. attorney serving now might prioritize prosecutions going forward? So so that effort where we sent letters to, in the end, I believe it was close to 100 dispensaries that were close to schools, is really a reflection of our effort at the time to make sense of a very difficult situation, a unique situation where federal law and state law, frankly, are at odds with each other. We were looking for neutral criteria to decide how to be fair in the way we prosecuted. So rather than just go out and say, okay, all these medical dispensaries are technically in violation of federal law and we're just going to choose a few at random and prosecute them, we decided what's really in the interest of public safety and public health. Marijuana dispensaries across the street from a middle school, and there were a couple of examples of that, serve, that's not a good situation. It's just not. And our 
we used uh, federal law that provide for enhanced penalties for drug dealing close to schools as a hook, in essence, to establish a rule that was we were going to put out to the entire industry saying you can't be close to a school. You needed to triage in some regard uh, what you were going to prosecute, um, what you were going to enforce, and this was a way of doing that. That's an excellent way of saying it, but it wasn't just triage, although that was the principal part of it. It was letting the community know how we were making these decisions. Hmm. Uh, what might that tell us about how the current U.S. attorney could triage maybe under this new regime, given what has changed in Washington? I, I think it's important to recognize that the eight aggravating factors laid out in the Cole memo. This is what was rescinded. Exactly. And I want to say this, this is not a toothless memo by any means. No. It, it said your job, U.S. attorneys, is to prevent the distribution of marijuana to minors. Uh, to break up cartels, gangs, criminal enterprises, to prevent the diversion of marijuana from states where it's legal to states where it's not. Absolutely. And all of those factors remain important factors for the use of prosecutorial discretion. In other words, if you've got cartel involvement in a marijuana enterprise here in Colorado, that was under the Cole memo and remains an important aggravating factor that might lead the U.S. Attorney's Office here to bring a case. I mean, it's interesting. So the, this memo is rescinded, and yet it sounds like its guiding principles will still guide the U.S. Attorney here. Uh, you have been critical of the Attorney General, but... You know, some of the confusion about how federal law enforcement should handle marijuana undoubtedly lies at the feet of Congress, right? I mean, they haven't taken much action since states started legalizing medical or recreational marijuana. Correct. Couldn't Congress just clear things up and, and address this fundamental friction between state and federal law? Well, I have to tell you that I, I, I wonder whether the silver lining of this decision yesterday by the attorney general will be to galvanize Congress to actually take action and to clarify this area. This is something that we within the department talked about years ago, the need for some statutory uh, revision to bring federal law and state law closer together. That hasn't happened. As a former federal prosecutor, I hear you asking Congress to act. Would I you think say that's true? I, that's absolutely true. All I right. think there needs to be action. This is a story that CPR News is covering, and you can read it, actually, at CPR.org. John, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. John Walsh was U.S. attorney in Colorado from 2010 to 2016, now in private practice in Denver. He was appointed by President Obama. We talked about the Trump administration's new direction on marijuana enforcement. Marijuana is not the only arena where federal policy remains uncertain. The same is true of renewable energy. Cities are trying to navigate that while making promises about where they get their power. CPR's Grace Hood reports. Brian Bagley is the last person who comes to mind when you picture a wind or solar advocate. The 40-something mayor of Longmont has a concealed carry permit and wears cowboy boots. Four antique shotguns hang on the walls of his law practice. I'm getting a lot of hits from the far right saying, oh, Bagley, you caved to the left, you, you tree hugger, you. Bagley switched from registered Republican to independent when he ran for mayor last year. During his campaign, the issue of 100 percent renewable energy came on his radar. In December, he issued a mayoral proclamation for the city. He wants to see 100 percent renewable energy by 2030. What they don't understand is it makes economic sense. If Longmont City Council members agree, they would join Aspen, Boulder, Nederland, and Pueblo. It's a topic the public will hear lots more about this year. 
Some Democratic gubernatorial candidates want the state to go 100 percent renewable energy. Democratic State Senator Matt Jones represents Longmont and other front-range cities. He says he'll introduce legislation to prompt utilities to move toward 100 percent. The price of wind and solar has dropped like a rock, and now wind is the cheapest energy source, followed by large-scale solar. Utilities like Excel Energy are increasingly choosing renewables for new power sources because of tax credits and cheaper supply costs. Right now, Excel, the state's largest utility, is reviewing plans with state regulators to move just over half of its electricity portfolio toward wind and solar. But there's a big challenge for cities like Boulder that want to get to 100 percent renewables. Where does the power come from when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing? There is a full gamut of ways to accomplish that. Kendra Tupper is chief sustainability officer for the city of Boulder. Right now, they are pursuing one of the most challenging paths towards 100 percent renewable energy. They want state permission to form a municipal utility. That means purchasing most of the infrastructure from Excel. Tupper says the city has 13 years to figure out its most reliable electricity mix. And there are ways that you firm up those renewable resources through storage, through um, natural gas generators, through batteries, all kinds of things. And that means waiting to see how technologies advance. Batteries could hold promise for storing wind or solar energy, but utilities say the technology needs improvement before it can be widely used. It's one reason why a nonprofit energy provider in Colorado commissioned a recent study to look at other strategies. Jason Frisbee is the general manager of the Platte River Power Authority. It looked at a future mix of traditional and renewable energy sources. We are simply overproducing renewables to offset the carbon that we're producing that ends up in a net zero result. So from our perspective, we're zero net carbon. Frisbee says initial estimates show this plan could ultimately cost customers up to 10 percent. Currently, Platte River Power supplies electricity to Fort Collins, Longmont, Estes Park, and Loveland. So far, it hasn't committed to a renewable goal. That's because getting there involves a number of different players. You have distributed generation, you have electric vehicles, you have energy efficiency. So I think it's going to be a comprehensive solution as we move forward. It all adds up to one giant moving target in the coming decades. Longmont Mayor Brian Bagley is encouraged by the Platte River report. He expects the Longmont City Council to solidify his goal with a vote later this month. See how technology advances, be cautious, but at the same time, take those steps forward. I'm thinking about someone who's having trouble paying their power bill. They look at 8 or 10 percent increase and they say, I don't know if I can do that. Just like we don't know about battery power, we don't know the future of pricing either. And so nobody's saying right now we're going to buy all 100 percent renewable today. We're going to do it step by step. The one thing city leaders seem to agree on is that electricity in one or two decades will look dramatically different compared to today. It's how you plan for the future that matters. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Funeral services are this morning for the officer gunned down in Douglas County last weekend. Deputy Zachary Parrish was 29, and there's a lot we still don't know about what happened, exactly why the shooter opened fire on Parrish and the other officers. But across the country, we do know that domestic disturbances are among the deadliest situations for police. 
That's according to an analysis from the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. Nick Bruhl is safety director there. And Nick, welcome to the program. Good morning. In Douglas County, what began as a domestic call quickly turned into something else. The sheriff has said all his officers were shot very, very quickly in what he described as an ambush-type attack. You served in the Metro Police Department in D.C. for many years. What is the mindset of an officer responding to a call at someone's home or business, and what kind of mindset should they have going into it? Yeah, you know, it depends upon the uh, type of call that you're being dispatched to. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in my experience as a policeman here in D.C., um, it, it was always of grave concern when you were going up to a home, particularly if it was a call for domestic violence, um, because these are very charged um, atmospheres. Um, and you just never know what you're going to find when you knock on that door. Um, and uh, so it's it's always uh, an area of concern for law enforcement officers when they're handling particularly calls that have, you know, immediately come out as a domestic disturbance or violence call. Um, you know, you really um, have to be prepared um, for a very uh, charged atmosphere and a potentially violent atmosphere. And let me say that uh, in Douglas County, there were initial reports that this was about domestic violence. That turned out not to be the case. Uh, But what you're saying is that nationwide, this is a very volatile situation for officers. Do you think officers are in the mindset uh, that accompanies what you just described there, that it's it's vulnerable and volatile? Or do you think that that officers get complacent and might see calls as innocuous? Yeah, I, I think that's a problem that we do try and address. And in the research that we've done, um, one of the other categories of calls that we uh, found in our research was that of uh, sort of the low-level nuisance uh, call that ended up being deadly. Mm. And I understand that the situation in Douglas County may have, in fact, been a noise complaint uh, of some type. Um, and, um, uh, you, you know, you, you want to avoid as an officer that complacency um, and you want to think uh, strategically for a lot of these calls. Um, and, and you know, we use the word vigilance all the time, and I, I think it's overused in the industry. But it, it is important that officers keep their stuff wired tight when they're going to go to any call because no call is routine. And, um, you know, even the seemingly innocuous or nuisance-type low-level call could uh, present some real challenges. So are there ways to keep officers vigilant? Maybe I I hear that and I think hypervigilance, but do they get reminders before they go out every day? Or is is there some way to instill that even for someone who's been on the beat for, you know, 15 years? It's very difficult. Um, and I know that uh, as a policeman, you know, complacency does set in. Um, and even if you're familiar with the people you're going to the call of, you may write it off uh, as, oh, here we go, we're going to the Robinsons again, they're fighting. You can never let that level of complacency get to that. You always need to be thinking. And it's difficult to do. Um, one of the things that they do train officers on is when you're handling a call for service, no matter what it it may be, um, uh, you, you sort of need to make sure you're putting all of your baggage away and doing what we referred to as game time, putting your game face on, 
and going in and handling the call. Um, but it, it starts at the call taker. It starts with the dispatcher. And one of the things we emphasize when handling calls, especially domestic violence calls or um, uh, shots fired calls or, or man with a gun call, is to get as much information and intelligence as you can mm-hmm. before you make that approach. And, you know, that's where officers are vulnerable because, as, as, I, as I say, you know, somebody's got to go up and knock on the door and make an assessment as to what's going on. Um, but it's always going to be prudent to step back, assess the situation, and get as much information as you can. Now, if, if we're talking about a situation that involves exigency, in other words, you know, you, you hear or are aware of something going on at which you have to immediately intervene, you, you may not be able to do that. Um, but but uh, it is it is something that if you have the opportunity to do, you want to do. I want to be very clear that we're speaking about law enforcement in general. And so when we use words like complacency, I don't want to uh, imply in any way that that was true of the officers in Douglas County. Uh, uh, absolutely not. Yeah. Yet, no. um, so one of your biggest recommendations for officers is not to respond to calls alone, no matter how innocuous. In this case, of course, multiple officers did respond and were shot. So what suggestions do you make beyond that, not responding alone? Well, again, so it would be about um, thinking and talking tactically before you go into um, a call. Um, At the end of the day, you can do everything right and still have to face that closed door. Um, You may be in a confined space and there may be no place for you to have cover, but you and your partner or if there are other officers there um, eventually and in some scenarios have no other choice but to knock on that door and begin to assess that situation and deal with that complaint or to try to get that person uh, help. Um, but it's always um, uh, very important, as I said, to, th- to think about these things and to act in concert, to talk about them, to share information. Um, and, and you mentioned officers responding alone. We've, we've seen some scenarios across the country where even calls that I would say are related to domestic disturbance or have a domestic element to them, such as serving protection orders or doing what we used to call assist with clothing, don't dispatch a single officer to that. Um, and also, we also recommend that officers when handling calls, particularly calls related to uh, domestic violence, that they clear the call together because, again, doing our analysis, we've seen scenarios where officers have been left on the scene to take the report from the complainant and the suspect shows back up and the officer ends up getting killed and is alone. Um, so, uh, but, but you know, I don't want to make any kind of an assessment as to what happened in Douglas County, because I'm not familiar with all the facts there. Uh, Indeed. Um, You know, there have also been some very high profile incidents over the past couple of years of officers just plain being targeted in Dallas, Baton Rouge, New York, possibly in this case. So that's another element here. Mental health issues also may have played a part in the Douglas County situation last weekend, again, where Deputy Parrish died. Uh, how have departments beefed up their ability to deal with mental illness when they respond to calls in the field? I mean, in a way, aren't they being asked to to do more in that regard? They are. I mean, it's you know, this is a really difficult job, and um, 
uh, we're becoming specialists in so many different fields now, um, and uh, departments have been responding to um, what are called uh, you know persons in crisis or mental health consumers um, by training their officers in crisis intervention techniques, and they they call them CIT teams. And these are specially trained officers who are trained in how to go and speak to people, recognize people in crisis, get them the referral or the help that they need, and hopefully not escalate the situation to where um, you know use of force then then becomes the end result. Um, but it's it's very difficult, and this is a very uh, concerning topic for law enforcement because we seem to be more and more being called to address people with mental illness or people who are in crisis, um, and uh, we end up being the, the sort of the arm of the government that's, that's here to try and solve this um, immediate issue, and uh, it's, a, it's a very daunting task. Um, and of course, uh, like many of the other calls I described, these are very charged situations with people who are um, agitated or upset, and, and uh, it can be a very dangerous situation. In about 30 seconds, Nick, your organization has a memorial for fallen officers around the country. It's in D.C., and I understand you're working on a museum to open this fall for fallen officers. That's correct. Um, We have the National Memorial, which has 21,183 names on it. This coming May, we'll be putting on the names from those officers killed in 2017. Um, and we've uh, the National Law Enforcement Museum is under construction. Um, it's directly across from the memorial and um, is, I think, going to be a great place to help educate the public about what it is law enforcement does and, of course, to show what you know law enforcement has done in the past and to educate people about the profession. Nick Brule, Safety Director at the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. We talked about the deadliest predicaments for police in light of a shooting last week in Metro Denver that left four officers wounded and one dead. Deputy Zachary Parrish's funeral is today. This is Colorado Matters. How should people move around Metro Denver in the future? It's a question local leaders are trying to answer. Public transit is one solution. But as CPR's Allison Sherry learned, some people worry that RTD, the regional transportation district, isn't keeping up with the times. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock isn't shy about talking about how he wants fewer people driving around Denver. Here's Hancock at his most recent State of the City address. Shockingly, 73% of Denver commuters drive to and from work in cars by themselves. We are going to dedicate more travel lanes as transit only and make bus service more accessible to everyone. We're going to support the next generation of commuters who don't necessarily think owning a car is the only way to go. Boulder, too, has aggressive hopes for its transportation future. Planners there want buses to come so often a resident wouldn't even need a schedule. They would just walk out their door and onto a bus within a few minutes. But as cities make these grand plans, they're starting to wonder whether RTD will even be a part of them. There's an incompatibility between what we see as the future of transit and what we feel that RTD can honestly provide. That's Mike Gardner-Sweeney, who heads up Boulder's transportation department. 
RTD provides public transit in eight metro area counties, but Boulder is exploring whether to take over parts of moving its people around. Some members of Boulder City Council have talked about leaving RTD altogether, Brexit style. Sweeney isn't ready to go that far, but he says RTD's focus on building train lines is draining resources from the bus system in Boulder and elsewhere. To me, it almost feels like it gets worse, not better. Denver City officials, too, are studying a mobility plan that might include some non-RTD options to get people around. Chrissy Fanganello runs the mayor's transportation department. Communities know what they need for their citizens probably way better than RTD can understand what we're, what our needs are because they are looking at this big regional system. And so what is our role in that? I think it's unfair and irresponsible for us to say to RTD, solve my problem. RTD General Manager Dave Genova says the district can't be all things to all communities. He says they have to balance the various wish lists. Lots of different asks from, you know, different agencies, different cities. I mean, there's always more needs than than we have resources for. And, you know, I I think that's similar to any organization, right? Even like your own household. Genova calls RTD financially strong, and he believes the transit agency is geared toward a bright future. RTD's budget relies in part on sales tax revenue they get from communities they serve. Critics point out that RTD is maxed out on debt and that the agency has delayed capital expansion and repairs because the money isn't there. Former RTD board member Angie Malpiede believes the transit agency is at a crossroads and says it needs to think more aggressively about the future. It's time to stop and evaluate what's happening and where they want to go. And I think that RTD is still functioning in a traditional transit methodology that doesn't fit with the new environment and the new technology as well as the new mindset in the community. At a time when cities are worried about congestion and trying to get more people to take public transit, ridership is actually down. This is a problem across the country on public transit, thanks mostly to gas prices, a healthy economy, and the explosion of ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. So as local governments make ambitious plans for everyone to take public transit, RTD board member Natalie Metten points out that not everyone likes it and that it's not responsible for RTD to expand if the riders aren't there. What was promised to the voters with ridership didn't even nearly come true. It was way over budget. And now we see this net effect of 3.6 million less boardings after all that investment. So I really don't know what person in their right mind would actually say, let's go dump some more money into that, because it's not working. RTD does say they're looking to expand popular bus rapid transit routes and exploring partnerships with private companies to help with technology. But critics say the agency needs to be thinking bigger about its future. Tony Lewis, who runs the Donnell K Foundation, has been studying how RTD serves high-needs populations, like school children. I feel like there is this perfect window of opportunity right now to say, what should transit look like in the metro area? What should a transit agency look like to accomplish that? Let's look at where the gaps are now, and then let's bring that information back. As public and private officials mull over how to keep people moving around this increasingly crowded region, RTD says it's ready to play an active role in the future. But some local officials wonder how prominent that role will be. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. In her reporting, Allison found that it's not just local governments that have some frustrations with RTD. And Allison joins us now to talk about that. Hi there. Hi there, Ryan. What other concerns came up 
from the people you were talking with? Well, nonprofits and other groups who advocate for poor people just don't think RTD is doing quite enough to help those people access transit. You know, these are people who actually need the buses and the trains to get to work, to get to school. They're called transit dependent. They don't have a car. Mm. Really, it's about the buses. That's where 70% of RTD ridership is. And poorer people tend to ride buses more than trains. So trains tend to go to richer neighborhoods and buses kind of go everywhere. So, you know, really these groups have kind of three complaints. They complain that the the bus service is thin in places where low-income people live, especially as gentrification has moved them further out of the city, you know, places like Aurora. They're upset that RTD is using money from the bus system to sort of essentially pay for more train lines and subsidize the train lines. They also say RTD should work harder to make discounted passes available to low-income workers and, and kids in particular should ride for free. This is Janae Donald she works for 9 to 5. It's an advocacy group for working women. You've got five-year-olds that are paying to get on the bus. They're five. If you're still sleeping in a twin bed and you're holding your mother's hand, you don't need to be paying for anything. I think Janae's sense, which is echoed by a lot of other advocates, is that the entire agency should focus more on serving the public, particularly these groups. What does RTD say about all this? Well, when you ask RTD about low-income populations, they'll talk about various programs they have. For example, one uh, grant that they give nonprofit groups to give people bus passes. Uh, there's also a working group right now meeting to evaluate other discount programs like EcoPasses. And that's a program for companies to offer low-price passes to their employees. That's right. And this group will release some recommendations next month. But you know, anything that they say or any advice they have will have to be eventually approved by the elected board. All in all, the general manager of RTD, Dave Genova, says the agency is financially strong, they have a bright future, and that consistently customer satisfaction surveys show that people are really happy with the current service. Now, you mentioned RTD's board. It's elected. Remind us how that works. Well, RTD is really large. You know, it operates in eight metro area counties and more than a dozen cities. There are 15 elected board members who represent that whole area. It's actually among the very few elected transit boards in the country. And a lot of people think that's kind of a bad idea. I mean, how many times do you get the ballot in the mail and you really know who your RTD candidates are for, you know, a certain election? The Don L. K. Foundation, which actually is a foundation that advocates for school children, has been looking at the governing structure of RTD. And here is Tony Lewis, the executive director. The board is independently elected. They don't appear to be hugely forward thinking in terms of transit. We think that there might be better models of governance out there. So what would he like to see instead? They're talking about an appointed board. Those people would be made up of local officials. They say that would be sort of a better check and balance for RTD, and the Donald K. Foundation is going to start to talk to lawmakers and other stakeholders about it. I should note that this would have to be passed by the legislature. RTD is set up all completely through state law. I see. And that not everyone feels this way. I During the reporting of this story, I actually received a letter from the Metro Mayor's Caucus, signed by the mayors of Lakewood, Golden, and Westminster, saying they would not support any effort to change RTD's governing structure. It's sort of a sensitive topic. Okay. And Lakewood, Golden, Westminster, those are all communities along light rail. Exactly. They're they're more happy. Definitely the mayors in those cities are more happy with RTD than, say, Boulder, where they were promised a train. They don't have a train and, and they feel like the service is not as good. In your story, you talked about how some local governments are considering setting up their own transit options. 
Uh, is anything happening like that in the private sector? Well, to that end, some private sector solutions have popped up. Um, there's a shuttle, for example, in Globeville that takes reservations and takes people to the grocery store once a week. Um, there's another guy. He started a service that shuttles people to Sherry Creek North. You know, that's just in Denver. There are other smaller rides and bus services in Inglewood and other places. It might be more of the future. Finally, I want to go back to a surprising number from your story that RTD ridership has dropped by about 4 million boardings over the past few years. RTD told you their future is bright, but are they worried about that? Well, I mean, fundamentally, that's the tension, right? RTD would like to see ridership up. And there are community groups who have tons of people who want to be riding RTD. They just say they can't afford to. But the two sides don't really fully agree on what to do here. I spoke to the Emily Griffith Foundation. It supports a technical college, mostly for high-risk students and refugees. And they get about 600 free bus passes a year through RTD. But Albie Siegel, who runs the foundation, he said the demand is much, much higher. When our students, when we would announce that we had passes available, they would literally line up around the hallway here. Amazing. Hundreds around the hallway sitting and waiting for their turn. And they'd run out 20 minutes. So I think a lot of people would like a broader conversation about what role RTD plays in helping at-risk people get around. Do they offer free bus passes to kids? Do they sort of stratify the pricing of their fares more? And I think in this increasingly expensive city, it's a conversation that a lot of people I talk to agree is way overdue. Allison, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Allison Sherry on the future of RTD. If you were listening to NPR in 1976, you'd have heard this theme. It's a little different from the one you hear today. And you would have heard this voice, one you still hear today. I'm Bob Siegel in Washington. That is how Robert Siegel wrapped up his first NPR newscast in 1976. Now we know him as longtime host of NPR's All Things Considered. And today he retires after 40 years with the network. He has given us a chance to turn the tables and ask him questions. Robert, welcome to the program. Ryan, thank you very much for inviting me. Is radio news what you imagined doing in life when you were a kid? When I was a a kid, no. Somewhere during college, in my last year of college, yes. But before that, I uh, assumed I would be, I mean, after getting over the idea of being a fireman or a house painter, which (laughs) were kind of five, six-year-old ambitions in life, um, I eventually settled into my parents' ambitions for me that I should be a doctor or a lawyer. That's what I I assumed I'd be doing. And what changed that in college? Uh, Well, first, organic chemistry changed part of it. I I realized how little interest I had in any of the courses that would prepare me to be a pre-medical student. And uh, working at the radio station, the college radio station, changed that. I enjoyed that tremendously. It was, uh, first, a kind of creative time-wasting. But then in my last year of college, this was at Columbia in 1968, there were big protests, big demonstrations that were a major news story in New York and a pretty big national news story. And we at the college radio station covered it uh, better than anybody. I anchored the coverage. I was a co-producer of it. And playing a role uh, during this uh, very tumultuous time, a time of great confusion and uh, chaos, playing a role of sorting out fact from rumor, what was going on, uh, being of, of use to people, knowing a lot about what was going on and not being an activist, all of this, I said to myself, I like this. And boy, if I could do this for a living, this would be great. 
Well, since then, you've covered countless major news stories. You were at ground zero after the World Trade Center's collapse in 2001. You were in China when a massive earthquake struck. And uh, you spoke with a local official through an interpreter. Is your your family all right? As far as I know, they're all buried underneath the, the mountains. I'm so sorry. Thank you very much, sir. Does that moment stand yes. out in your mind? I remember it, and uh, I remember, I think, the same day uh, meeting a man at a hospital. It was a, a traditional medicine hospital. There were two, two different kinds of hospitals in China. And um, he talked about having lost his family, and I think watching somebody just jump off the side of the building uh, during the earthquake. And uh, and then he just burst out crying. He just, he just broke down crying. People were doing their best uh, to go about life in some normal way after the most abnormal, horrible thing imaginable that happened to them. And uh, it was it was very it was very moving and, and very instructive. I remember one village we went to where all of the stone dwellings had just come apart uh, under the earthquake and the animals were were running loose. The pigs, you know, were no longer in the pen because the pen had come apart. And as I was interviewing someone, a, an older lady came with an umbrella to hold it over my head so that I shouldn't catch too much sun. Uh, these were people to whom we had brought. We would, we would go out and bring bottles of water uh, so that we could help people out a bit. But the hospitality, uh, the sense of duty, uh, it, it was overwhelming uh, given the most terrible thing you could imagine having happened to these people. The man jumping, was, was he trying to escape the earthquake? I think it may have been that he had lost sons and had jumped. Oh, my. When you started, radio news relied on tape recorders. And now, of course, uh, there's so much more to it. Twitter, Facebook, Skype. Uh, Is there an end of the timeline you prefer? Like, do do you long for something simpler or or do you crave the new challenge? Well, I'm not, I, I I have not taken to Skype. Uh, very, very uh, enthusiastically, to put it mildly. And I think there's a difference between breathing out loud and transmitting your every thought to as many people who will connect with you or follow you and figuring out some facts of a story, dispensing with the stuff people may think that turns out not to be accurate and and, uh, underscoring what is accurate. That, to me, is different. And uh, I, I, I think that this social media... Are just not, they're not inherently what journalism is about. Journalism is not the same thing as just talking about stuff. There's a very important reason to talk about stuff. It's how we interact socially. But um, I don't think that all of the water cooler conversation in America would have made for very good journalism 30 years ago. And I don't think it makes for very good reading on social media today. I, I began with reel to reel tape recorders, as you say, and we moved on to high quality cassette machines. And uh, from there to digital audio tape and from there to uh, discs and finally to sound files. I don't think I've left anything out. But um, those are all recording devices. They're all about being able to capture sound. And to me, sound and time comprise the medium of radio. The tools with which we gather that sound and which we edit it to figure out how much time it's worth – uh, those change, and, and they've been changing pretty rapidly. But to me, the the basic structure of, of telling a story with sound and reporting it 
uh, remains pretty constant. Uh, this has all been incredibly serious so far. And, yeah, and yeah. I want to yeah. say that there there have been times that a guest had you laughing pretty hard. Um, like when you interviewed comedian John Benjamin about his experimental jazz album. <laughs> this uh, track is called I Can't Play Piano. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't <laughs> This is called I Can't Play Piano, Part 2. And it's obvious you can't play piano. I really can't. And it really shows. <laughs> and, yet, and yet here you are yeah. uh, playing with some guys who seem to know what they're doing quite they, well. They, they were very accomplished jazz. What is the most fun you've had? <laughs> <laughs> it still makes you laugh. Still makes me laugh. I can't play piano. <laughs> what, what would you say is the most fun part of the job? Well, things like that certainly are a lot of the fun of the job. Uh, also, you know, the, the idea of reading a novel or seeing a movie and then just as it's over, sitting down with the director or the writer and, and asking the questions that uh, all of us would have if we'd been reading the book along together or if we'd been to the movie together. And I get to actually ask those questions. You know, I get to talk with them. That's that's phenomenal fun. I'll miss it, the whole idea, you know, of going to see a movie and never talking with any of the actors or the director, you know, it's, I, it feels a little incomplete to me at this point. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Robert Siegel of NPR, who is retiring, a host of All Things Considered. And uh, besides being a reporter and host, you've also been news director at NPR. And so you, you've really yeah. seen the radio news business from all angles. Would you say was the worst moment of your career? The worst moment of my career was probably the moment when I had to come back and be news director, uh, acting news director, because we had very ambitiously expanded while anticipating a cut in Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding. And in, in a time when NPR was very dependent on that money, it's changed a great deal over the years. And uh, we had to lay off a tremendous number of people. And I was asked to come back from London and run the news department as it was then because I had I'd done so on an acting basis before going to London. I'd, I'd been an editor and hired a lot of people and so I had some management experience. But uh, staring at people who were laid off and hoping to be rehired if we could expand again, hearing from people who'd lost confidence in the institution and uh, figured that we were, we were finished in 1983. This was obviously the end of a of NPR, uh, that was very disturbing. Having to say no so many times and having to work in a way, it's, I think this is not a good management environment, but I felt that my job for the first year or so was as much about stopping things from happening as making them happen, trying to protect what we did from perhaps well-intentioned changes that were proposed to make it less likely that we would ever go that much over budget again. That, that was... That was uh, for me, it was it was painful stuff, and I didn't think I was really that I had a personality well suited to doing that. But it was it was awful, and I did it for four years. After a year or so, we launched Weekend Edition Saturday, and I thought it was like the moment when the Wizard of Oz goes to color. We had shown that we could do a program that was as good or better than anything we'd ever done before. Uh, this place was not underwater, and. Uh, 
that there was a future. And uh, Scott and his producer, Jay Kernis, uh, and, and that group, I thought, did wonderful things to erase the dark years from our corporate memory. Scott Simon. Scott Simon. Uh, a natural storyteller you are, Robert, ending on a more positive note. So we, 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 can, <laughs> we can wrap this up. Th- thank you yeah. so much for being with us, and, and good luck in the next chapter. Well, thanks a lot. And, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening uh, all these years and for supporting Colorado Public Radio and public radio stations everywhere. It's how we at NPR News are supported, and we're very grateful for it. So thanks. Robert Siegel, host of NPR's All Things Considered, retires today. There are links to his recent interview with Fresh Air's Terry Gross and some of his best work at CPR.org. And one last thing. He was recently recognized by Jeopardy. Uh, Let's finish the category. 4,000, please. I was NPR's first journalist based overseas, sent to London in 1979, not for all things considered, but to prepare for the launch of this show at the other end of the day. Ian? What is Morning Edition? Morning Edition, that is correct. And our thanks to Robert Siegel, and we wish him good luck as he leaves all things considered. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Rachel Estabrook and Shauna Lewis. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.